0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we are joined by Institutional Portfolio Manager Naveed Rahman and Portfolio Manager Salim Hart from the team behind Fidelity Global Intrinsic Value Class. They discuss market lows, particularly in Asia, the beneficiaries of the banking crisis and which regions are currently on their radar. Naveed and Salam explain that the debate over the impact of the pandemic continues in the marketplace, with the CPI at over 8% in the U.S. but expected to decline further. They say their approach as bottom-up stock pickers enables them to prioritize good businesses and valuations, as opposed to relying on market speculation. Turning to Asian markets, Naveed and Salam explain that their analysts enjoy searching for micro-cap stocks in Japan, and often find companies with single-digit P.E. ratios, with market caps and cash on the balance sheet. Japan is a region that has always been of interest to portfolio manager Joel Tillinghast. Joel, as you may know, is retiring at the end of 2023. Salam and Naveed provide an update on the multi-year transition that included bringing Morgan Peck and Sam Chemovitz onto the fund, and continues with Joel remaining as an advisor upon his retirement from portfolio manager. This episode was recorded on May 31, 2023. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses and commissions are all associated with fund investments.
1: I was wondering if from your perspective, let's start with you, Naveed, to just get a sense of is inflation just absolutely the most important thing that you're considering right now? Or are we move past that a little?
2: Uh, in a word yes <laughs> um it is it is absolutely paramount I and mean, and I think it's a big adjustment for all of us as investors and market participants because for so long, Pamela it was not a thing. It was hovering somewhere south of two percent, which which was the federal Reserve's target for a long time uh and And the big debate in the marketplace is that you know we are probably off the um the highs post pandemic. In the U.S., as an example, uh, CPI, you know, reached eight uh, percent, north of eight percent. The trajectory is downward. But I think what we are wrestling with, and what uh, I'm sure Solomon will talk about in a minute, is what we can see from the underlying research of the companies and the macro research is that inflation is probably headed down, but at a slower pace and, and probably without maybe the the speed that the most optimistic market participants were hoping for. That we would quickly get, get from eight to, to the Federal Reserve's target. You know, the data would, on the ground tells us that we're heading in the right direction, but it may take longer to get there than many of us expected.
1: Um, is it the first thing that you take a look at when you wake up in the morning, you're looking at screens and put it in perspective from your, from your place?
3: I mean, I think it's definitely important on the trajectory of the economy, but, you know, as we've talked about before, I think we are definitely bottoms up stock pickers and are looking at individual companies so um you know joel and the team have always talked about um you know trying to predict the economy is very difficult and it's a lot easier just to focus on good businesses at good valuations. so i think that's where most of our our focus is but we can't you know we can't um ignore the fact that inflation helps certain companies uh more you know more than others and hurts others um, as well as, well as you know, what the Federal Reserve is doing uh, you know due to the trajectory of the economy. And I think things have been holding up well. And as you mentioned, inflation has still been running above what the Fed wants because there is a lot of excess savings and liquidity in the system. Um, you know, even though the Fed has been reducing their balance sheet and money supply growth is negative, um, it's still quite a bit above trend, above the pre-COVID trend. So there's a lot of that to work through. And I think that's one reason that we've seen um, inflation and in the consumer hold up uh, you know, better than, than some people expected, but um, you know, it, kind of in order to counter that, I think by definition the Fed does have to slow down the economy, and the question is just really by by how much will that end up happening? And I think our base case is a mild slowdown, but the portfolio is well positioned, um, you know, for something worse, given our attention to quality stocks, you know, value, um, and and very good downside protection that the, the fund offers investors. Mm-hmm.
2: Paul, if I could just add one thing, and we don't want to have inflation be the only topic, but it is important uh, to keep in mind that the, the post pandemic deglobalization mega trends that, that we are seeing, you know um decoupling of, of supply chains, having more redundant supply chains, that's point one, and then secondly, the global effort to um, have a greener economy, a greener um, sort of power grid. You know, I think these are two other important factors aside from what we've discussed that are long-term inflationary in mind. So I, those those are not this cycle, whether we have a recession, how long it lasts. Those are very likely sort of multi-year, multi-decade cycles, and that provides a a tailwind for inflation. So I, I guess to put a button on it, we, we we feel like we are just investing and operating in a more inflationary environment than we have for 15 years, and it's. It's a sea change, and we all have to sort of adjust and pick the right kinds of stocks to sell this point uh, for, for for a different environment. And those
3: kinds of trends are really, you know, where we're looking at from a bottoms up perspective. You know, MCOR is a decent sized position uh, in the fund, and it's it's uh, basically a construction company that, that doesn't focus on the consumer space um, and, and is a big beneficiary of, of onshoring and, and rebuilding capacity, you know, here in this country and, you know, Naveed mentioned Alternatives, one of the biggest stocks in the portfolio is Total, and even though it is traditionally a hydrocarbon-focused, you know, company, they're a leader in LNG, which is a little bit more, um, you know, friendly to the environment, as well as they've made a lot of investments um, in renewables and have done a lot of work in that area, too. So
1: um, those are the
3: types of things from a bottom-up perspective that Naveed mentioned that are definitely important to us.
1: That's so fascinating, really. I mean, it's fascinating to sort of, hear what you think broadly and then and then go into the actual the the types of investments themselves. If if I can just kind of go back to the idea that we could be for reasons that you mentioned in a longer inflationary environment. Just to maybe put a dot on the button, I wonder, you can you just sort of say what what ultimately does that do to so called growth from your perspective, the style of growth and what it's dependent on in terms of interest rates versus value.
2: Sure. And there is some risk in oversimplifying, you know, uh, growth and value, uh, the composition of what goes into that changes with time, with market cycles. Um, many things influence sort of, you know, whether one style will outperform versus the other and how expensive they are and the relative earnings growth are all really important. Um, but you, I can't get away from basic discount math. If interest rates are higher and remain higher for longer, then, companies with distant cash flows on a present value basis are valued less and companies with more near-term cash flows that perhaps have cyclicality in their business with value companies typically do, you know, are, are, are on, on balance kind of net beneficiaries. So, so you know, we, we do think that the overall more inflationary environment is, is, is on the margin beneficial to value investing and We've run the numbers in the 1970s when uh, inflation in the U.S. ran, I think, about 8% for a six-year period. Um, And, you know, history isn't perfect. uh, You know, it doesn't rhyme perfectly. But in that time period, value stocks, handily outperformed growth stocks, Uh, the last time we had a sustained period of high
1: inflation. So, Salim, what the heck have we been watching then the last three weeks, the last three months? I mean, growth has been just fine.
3: Yeah, value um, performed really well in 2022 um a lot of those stocks got uh, significantly beaten down especially smaller cap areas of you know, SaaS and software and, and all the tech stocks many um, were down 70 80 percent in the year and then um you know you often have january rallies and we saw a lot of the beaten up things at the end of the year bounce back hard at the beginning of the year and then there have been uh you know some actually some liquidity events you know naveed mentioned interest rates i think interest rates are correlated to some extent liquidity in the system that as rates go up it it drains some liquidity out but you know here in the U.S. you've seen the uh, you know the U.S. treasury actually not being able to issue debt for a while now Um, and that's uh, you know they've had to actually spend cash on on deposit at the Fed and draw that down um, as well as the Fed themselves has had to inject some liquidity during uh, the banking crisis in March when we had a couple of banks go under and they had to expand their balance sheet Then, so you've actually seen some liquidity come back in the market. So that could be partly what's going on with growth as you know, mean mentioned interest rates, you know, went down during the first quarter on the banking problems. Um, but you know, nothing goes in a straight line. So, you know, we're definitely optimistic that it's a it's a bounce in growth after uh, what was a terrible year last year and that um, you know these these cycles tend to go more in decades rather than months. So uh, we're optimistic that uh, the value trend started last year and that we're in for many okay. good years of value outperformance.
1: Awesome. And if you'd pick up on, on, on the banking crisis, because to what extent, well, you know, are we finished with that? And second of all, the beneficiaries, how do you look at them and, and do you like them?
2: Yeah, that's a, it's a fantastic topic. Um, and it really, I think, highlights the opportunity for active management, right? So. We had interest rates grow, go up dramatically in last year, as we discussed. Uh, often when that happens, something in the economy breaks, uh, and in the case of, of uh, U.S. banks, especially U.S. smaller cap banks in particular, um, you know, uh, some of those uh, were, were mismanaged from an asset liability management perspective, had deposits that were really flighty and, and left. Um, our approach in the global intrinsic value is is to find the combination of cheap high quality cash generative companies and and focusing on quality and valuation uh, you know helped us avoid some of the companies at the at the pinpoint of, of of the banking stress. We did not invest thankfully in any of the companies that went uh, into receivership and were taken over by the Fed or taken over by um, competitors in, in the last three or four months um, and on balance, Pamela, Uh, You know, we think that larger cap banks, uh, the super regionals and the money center banks are going to be net beneficiaries here um, as they already have um, uh, uh, provision for the level of capital that that, that the Federal Reserve requires. And the smaller banks had been actually um, sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, didn't have to set aside as much capital. That may be changing. Capital requirements may be going up across the board, but the larger banks are already there. So on, on on a on a, sort of, uh, a go-forward basis, they were a net beneficiary. And, and our largest holding um, uh, or largest financial holding, Wells Fargo, is one of those large banks that is poised to take share. It, it's it's probably perhaps not what the Treasury wanted or the Federal Reserve wanted, all things being equal, but in times of stress, you, you, you do see sort of um, deposit share and market share move to the stronger hands. And we're positioned in the stronger hands and not positioned in the cheap but weaker hands in financials, we think.
1: Okay. we got. I, I want to come back to, to opportunities, sectors, different areas, but I also just want to point out for those joining you here today that, I mean, you know, recession feels real to a lot of people, that it's in the offing, it's been well telegraphed, we know that. But just, just remind us how the fund has done ultimately in markets where you see a, you know, a real downdraft. Um, and and also to capture the upside. Can I, can I put that to you, Salim, or whoever wants to answer? But just to kind of remind. Yeah,
3: maybe maybe I can talk about our strategy and, and then Naveed can yeah. weigh, in, weigh in too on, on, on some of that. Um, yeah. You know, I think we typically, as Naveed mentioned, invest in more stable, high quality companies. Um, and, and really that allows us to weather the storm a little bit. We're well diversified across sectors, across geographies, and we're kind of picking um, that best combination of stability and valuation, which really does, I think, you know, give us a lot of downside protection. Both of those pillars, really. Um, you know, at some point, Pamela, should the markets make a major move lower, or we see real dislocations, take advantage of. You know, we won't hesitate to deploy cash, go down the quality spectrum. Um, you know, but for now, the portfolio remains lower beta, relatively defensive, similarly to how we were positioned, la- you know, last year and coming in.
2: Yeah. I might add Pamela that you know over the last three years, which is a significant period of time to look at, and we've had a lot of volatility last three years, the portfolio has captured something like fifty percent of the downside of the market and eighty percent of the upside and and so I guess for me, those numbers are really meaningful for two reasons: one, the spread is positive we're capturing more of the upside than the downside by a wide margin, and two, both those numbers are below hundred, so it is a By virtue of the reasons Solomon alluded to, it is a portfolio that is uh, really a port in the storm when when, when things are um, dicey and challenging from a macro perspective, from a risk perspective, as we are describing. It's not a portfolio that has to do a lot of work to get there. It is a natural outcome of the core investment process that we have a lower volatility equity portfolio, It is part and parcel of what we do here.
3: Right. Low and steady wins the race, um, you know, for better or worse, will never be really exciting when the market's taking off and meme stocks are, are, are going up like crazy. But we'll also uh, help our investors uh, get better at night. Yeah,
1: Fascinating. Um, so let's go back to uh, a little bit of where you're looking for some of your best ideas. I, I really want to get to the global nature of things. Um, we've discussed in other areas, um, Fidelity Connects, you know, the value of taking a look at the currency story. Um, but just perhaps for Canadian investors that allocate a certain amount, certainly, to invest in the U.S. often, maybe looking for other account. How does your fund help with that?
3: This portfolio is... Um about half, roughly, um, outside of the U.S., so I think it provides great uh, geographic diversification, um, especially at a time when, really, the U.S. market has led the world for the last 10 years and is trading at a a pretty high premium to other global markets from a valuation perspective. You know, just how we're positioned in Europe, we actually increased our weight in Europe um, to a pretty significant degree last year, you know, especially after the, the invasion of Ukraine, and there were a lot of energy worries in Europe. That was actually a time when um, valuations, there were some you know dislocations. Like, people were actually quite, quite worried in Europe last year. And that's kind of what we look for, is that that fear, that over-pessimism. Um, we're actually still underweight in Europe. We've been underweight since the fund inception in 2015, but we're the least underweight uh, we've ever been coming into this year. Um, you know, we like consumer names in the UK. We like um, some names, uh, pharma names in continental Europe, um, energy names, auto parts. I mentioned, um, you know, Total earlier. That's a big holding for us. So, you know, we're looking all over the world. Um, Japan is our biggest overweight from a country perspective. Uh, like
1: to- how, how how much history do you have investing in Japan? I, I recall when we spoke in the past. It's an area that you and, and Joel has always been very yeah, interesting. So we,
3: uh, we love scouting for the micro cap stocks in Japan. Many tiny companies we're often able to find them where they have, you know, half their market cap in cash on the balance sheet, if not more and no debt, trading at single digit PE ratios. Um, you know, the knock against Japan has always been that there's really poor corporate governance and they're not focused on shareholder returns. And that has been true, but it continues to improve over time um, You know, as the the government there has has in you know has basically encouraged firms to be more shareholder friendly seen a little bit more at m and a and now we're getting inflation after years of deflation in Japan, which can be a catalyst um because they've kind of been stuck in the deflation trap, so actually having a little bit of inflation like is helping the economy there to, to um you know to, to start to emerge a little bit more than it has in the past
2: yeah if i Pamela, if i pick up on Solomon's point on japan it's it's really significant in the sense that. It has been cheap for over a decade, you know, relative to small and mid-cap opportunities around the world. But above and beyond just compelling valuation, there really is a concerted effort to improve corporate governance in Japan. And so you are seeing shareholder uh, uh, share buybacks, increasing dividends. Um, in fact, you know, the Japanese government has directives to, uh, to public companies that say that you have to sort of take a course of action Move your ROE to a 7% target. That, that's a, a stated uh, government objective that they have for, for public equities in Japan. If you trade below book value, you have to have a plan of action to, to improve that. Um, so, so if above and beyond valuation, there's actually sort of corporate governance improvements that, that are happening. And, and then a side benefit in addition to that is that if, if China proves to be a more challenging place to invest. Um, Japan is 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 sort of one of the beneficiaries of that for, from a global capital perspective. And it's had a nice start to the year. I think it's up 18% year to date in USD terms. But despite that outperformance, it's still at a really meaningful discount to small mid-caps we can find in the US.
3: It used to be in um, Japan that um, it was a status, you know, it was a status for a company to be listed on a stock exchange there. So many companies who probably should have remained private. You know, listed on the stock exchange even though they were too small and it didn't really uh, you know make that much sense and i think now there's a little bit more pressure at the margin for companies that are listed that, that yes you do have public shareholders and and you're accountable to them not only to your employees um but also you know your customers your employees and also shareholders our constituency and i think that thought process is starting to to, to happen a little bit more in japan as as naveed mentioned and um you know, Japan's been in the news, you know, if, if anybody heard about Warren Buffett, he made he made news a couple of times with all his investments in trading companies in Japan because they were quite stable businesses at you know, seven, eight times earnings, um, really a beneficiary um, of currency movements, of, you know, global trade, out, you know, outside of China. And, um, you know, we've owned them for a long time. I, I, I told you, you know, it's just one of the ones Warren Buffett um, bought has been in the portfolio since 2015. Uh, near the top of the portfolio. So we definitely recognize the, the values there and other people I think are um, starting to as well.
1: Um, and if you, there's some questions in going back to financials, in this case, Canadian financials, um, I don't know if, you know, they're sort of in a broadly structured in the same way as the really big banks in the U.S. in the sense that they're sort of fortresses. Um, any interest in Canadian banks?
2: Um, so I, I think one thing I'll say is that the Banking structure in the U.S. and Canada are quite different, right? I mean, Canada is a much more concentrated banking market, as you all know. We have over four, almost five thousand banks in the U.S. So, um, the uh, just the number of, of, of the concentration in strong hands in Canada is a is a bigger phenomenon. Um, but uh, you know, the, the there is a lot of relative value um, in in U.S. financials. So I think you know our holdings are generally in. Uh, us banks but more so than above and beyond banks we also have a fair amount of allocation in in, in insurance companies uh, and so property and casualty uh consumer finance um so we are spread across those sectors and then i'll highlight that at the end of the day uh we're still underweight financials versus the uh the the broad index so um you know, I think we've been closing the underweight in, in, in this period of stress, but we did not come into this banking stress with a big overweight in financials uh, because uh, they actually had a pretty good run um, prior to the banking stress of, of March uh, and they had benefited from rising rates but not had not really incorporated some of the potential risks associated with credit losses from a, from a possible recession to come.
1: Right. Interesting. Okay. Um, there's some great questions coming in here. And some of them go back to a couple of things that you said. So. Um, This question, are emerging markets in comparison to Europe um, a better place to focus uh, in this high inflationary period? So parts of that you probably answered, but, you know, as a broad statement, what would you say there?
3: I think there's we definitely always find some values in emerging markets. Um, There's a lot of risks there that, you know, that one has to account for. And generally our positions in those names are quite a bit smaller. Um, You know, we definitely value property rights. Political stability, um, if at all possible, uh, and and those are the things that um, you know corporate governance. Those are all things that are really important that I think sometimes in emerging markets you have to be really careful about. Pamela, so we definitely have um, you know probably mid single digit percent weight of the portfolio in emerging markets, and we're always looking for opportunities. But at the margin, they do have to to meet a little higher bar on the quality of the business just because they are operating in a um uncertain area i mean i think um you know with the with the u.s dollar as strong as it has been um you know it can help some export oriented companies in in some of these places whether it be japan or emerging markets so i definitely think there's some opportunities there and valuations are good so i wouldn't overlook em just be very careful and and you know i think what naveed would say is is it's a great place for stock picking but you definitely don't want to just blindly put an allocation there
1: Perfect. Okay. Um, there is a question. I was going to ask you about this anyway, but just to bring us up to date on the, the fund itself, the transition um, between managers. I'll just ask you about this. Someone is writing in asking, is Joel Tillinghast still involved uh, in the day-to-day? So why don't I put that to you, Salim, first? Absolutely.
3: Yeah. So um, Joel's retirement, uh, it's still many months away, but it's been well communicated. There's a There's a long multi-year transition by the end of the year, he'll come off as a official named portfolio manager on the funds, but he'll still be sitting in the office next to me um, as an advisor to us all in the department and uh, and and share his investment insights all the time with us. Um, you know, we're about, I guess, three quarters of the way through the transition. Uh, this proceeding is expected. You know, Morgan Peck and Sam Chamovitz and I and Joel all share a similar investment process. Uh, you know, they're bringing new ideas and a fresh perspective to all the existing holdings, and we're all meeting with Joel and, and, and I regularly, and we're all talking to, you know, all the time about the portfolio and the individual names. So I think you're seeing that influence, but we're hoping for our shareholders, it'll be a very stable process and they won't see the characteristics of
2: the portfolio um, you know, changed by very much at all.
1: Okay, and if you'd have anything to add?
2: Yeah, Pamela, I might just pick up on, um, the proof is in the pudding, right? So we, we have explained the transition, Almost two years ago, as Salem said, we're three quarters of the way through. It's an investment team that shares the same core investment philosophy and process. And by, by the proof in the pudding, I mean that the characteristics of the portfolio have not changed. We are demonstrably cheaper than the benchmark, demonstrably higher quality than the benchmark. We continue to have really attractive up and down capture as we discussed earlier in the portfolio, as Joel has demonstrated in his three decades of investing in the US. And then lastly, you're not seeing this big uptick in turnover. There are other examples in the industry where an investor might retire and move on and a new investor comes on and you see this sort of momentary spike in turnover and the portfolio has to be overhauled. Turnover of the portfolio is happening at at, at roughly its regular cadence and it's really driven more by the market opportunities that we're seeing and less because there is a fundamental rethink in in sort of the core, core investment philosophy
1: right okay fantastic thanks for bringing us up and, and i'll weigh in that you know yeah.
3: morgan yeah. and sam and i have all been working with joel for many years i've been on this fund since 2015 and morgan and sam have been on low price stock fund as have i working with you know side by side with joel for you know at least five to seven years uh, you know each of us so we have a lot of years invested in the process um, mentorship with joel and, and working with him closely on, on multiple products
1: fantastic well yeah thank you for bringing us up to date and we um wish everyone well and we look forward to speaking to all of you uh in, in the months ahead um Navita I might just ask as a final because some people join us later in this conversation than others but just to kind of go out with why this fund now as you know some people are biting their nails about recession risk for sure and also yeah, the global well, exposure just kind of give us the final word
2: sure okay. I, I think um Uh, We often assume that past is prologue in investing, and it it often is the opposite, right? So if we look at the long history of investing, what has served you well and served your clients well for the trailing 10 or 15 years is often not the thing that you need to be focused on on a going forward basis. And global intrinsic value is a really nice complement to the core exposures that many advisors have. The last 10 to 12 years, U.S. has beaten non-U.S., growth has beaten value, and tech has beaten everything else. We are a more non-U.S. than U.S., small instead of large cap, and sort of more value than growth. So we are really complementary to sort of the one-way direction of the the market in the 2020s, or 2010s, I should say. And uh, and, and I think that's actually, that sets us up really well to play an important role in an investor's portfolios.
1: I want to thank both of you for for stopping by and joining us on Fidelity Connects. Naveed and Salim, have have a great rest of your day.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Great to see you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you. See you next time.